to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament, so if you just pick up a Bible in your pew or one that you brought with you, you'll open up first to Genesis, the next book is Exodus, and we will be in Exodus chapter 20. As has been our practice throughout this series, we're going to read all of the Ten Commandments, and we're going to focus on one each week. And this week's focus is on thou shall not kill. And so hear the entire word of the Lord, hear the entire set of law that is designed for us to live in response, to live according to God's law as a response to the grace that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ, with special attention this morning for what it is to not kill, and in fact, what it is to honor life. But before we come to God's word, let's pray together. Speak, O Lord. For we, your servants, listen. We listen for affirmation of the familiar truths that we hold dear. We listen to be grown and changed more into your likeness. We listen with ears that know that you love us, mind, body, and soul. And we listen with ears to hear your grace and truth. Speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. By the power of your Holy Spirit, illumine your word to us in our hearts and in our minds so that you may be glorified in our lives. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Exodus chapter 20, 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt Out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, when's the last time you murdered someone? Any takers? 
I would actually say you probably wouldn't confess that publicly here if you thought it applied to you. When's the last time you murdered someone? Most of us would say, never. Therefore, clean slate. I kind of have this commandment figured out already. This is another one of those ones that's maybe easy to just glide right along and say, we got this already. We don't kill people. We understand that that's wrong. We don't do it. But I'd like to tell you the last time that I murdered someone. It was last week Sunday when I left here and I drove very, very quickly to Zealand Hospital and there was someone in my way. And I was going to turn right from New Holland onto 96th and they would not move. And there was a very slow-moving vehicle coming and the car in front of me would not turn right so that I could then proceed onto the hospital. And so, I said a few things in my car, not to them, not that they heard, but a few words that I thought would hasten them along, and I expressed my frustration at this fool who was in front of me that would not move. Fool is a good word for it. I also know I've been at that same corner waiting to turn right and thought, you know what, that car looks like it's coming pretty fast, and someone behind me I can see their gestures and the, the lips moving, and I know that they are also trying to murder me. And here's the definition of murder by which that is true. It comes to us from Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about some of the Ten Commandments, especially the ones that we say, you know what, we know how to not do that. Like, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. Jesus, in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21, says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So I ask again, when's the last time you murdered someone? When's the last time that you've been angry with someone? Not the flare-up of anger that we process and work through, but the last time that you've been angry in a way that you've held a grudge, that you have thought less of someone, that you have gritted your teeth or clenched your fist or said some words that you shouldn't have? When's the last time you've called someone a fool or other words that we could probably translate in place of raka? Raka is one of those words that there's really no good way to say what it means publicly because to say the intent of the word would probably lead me to say words that we just don't want necessarily said here. We can talk about those later or spell them out secretly. Jesus continues, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus puts such a high push on this commandment to not murder That he says, if you're in the middle of a a sacred act of worship, offering an atoning sacrifice at the altar, even if you're in the middle of that, and you realize that you are not reconciled with a brother or sister, you need to go and do that first before you come 
and offer a, offer a gift, a sacrifice to be reconciled with God. Jesus ups the ante on what not murdering is to the degree where the commandment went from that's easy, don't kill people, don't commit homicide, to a level at which we can't hardly sustain. To never get angry at someone, to never say something we shouldn't in traffic, to talk about someone either to their face or behind their back in ways that are not honoring. Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 5, beginning at verse 43, with these words on loving your enemies. This is the conclusion of Jesus' work on not murdering. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you, for those who belittle or diminish or attack you. Pray for those people who assassinate your character and speak ill of you even when they're lying. Pray for those that persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the pagans and tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore. Be perfect, says Jesus, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I don't think we're going to raise our hands very quickly and say that we murdered anyone this week. But I also think we would not raise our hands if we asked, so who is perfect? There really shouldn't be any takers on that one either. Jesus is pointing us towards the fulfillment of the law the desired and intended conclusion by which the Ten Commandments and all the law and the prophets push us towards. And what we've been using consistently in North Holland is that direction, that directive, is towards loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is how we live a life that is centered on the intent of God's commandments. And we live this way not to earn God's favor, uh, not, not to try to impress God, because we can't. We live this way according to these rules, these Ten Commandments, as a response of gratitude. Because Christ has already given his self-giving love to us, we live this way in response. Christ values your life so much that he gave his life for you and for me. In response, then, we live a life that upholds everyone else's life as worthy of Christ dying for them. When Jesus says, be perfect, this is a a teleological move. Now, that's kind of a a fancy, fun word from theology, uh, teleology. Not many of us probably use that in our everyday talking, but there are two concepts that help us understand what teleology is, what Jesus is talking about. Anyone ever play with a telescope? Yeah, a few. You're looking at things that are far away. And you've heard of this word theology, this talk about God. Teleology is easy to say. Teleology is telescope theology. It's telescope plus theology. It is looking towards the final and directive intent of which we are to live. So when Jesus says, be perfect, 
He's saying, live towards perfection, towards the perfection that God intends for you. Live towards the fulfillment of the law. Now, only Christ can fulfill the law. Only Christ did that in fullness and perfection. But we, in response, live towards that fulfillment and perfection. Now, that might seem like a lot to work on. That might seem like a lifetime of progress to celebrate, a lifetime of slipping up and failing and recovering from that. And that would be true because that's discipleship. We have our wins. We have our celebrations. We have things like baptism and profession of faith and communion, points of celebration. And we have our moments where we blow it too, where we might murder someone with our words. A helpful category in all of this is to think of the commandments not just in terms of the action, but in word and thought and deed. Word, thought, and deed. What you say, what you think, and what you do. And Jesus is applying this commandment of you shall not murder to word and thought and deed. Not just the act of homicide, but also to the thoughts that we have about other people when we are angry and resentful towards others. And Jesus also applies this to the words that we say and how we talk about people. This is great depth to be wrestled with, and it takes a lifetime to sort this out. But there's also just the plain meaning of the text of not killing and what we stand for and how we form our own ethical code based off of this. Now, we might be quick to judge the Romans because they executed criminals left and right, and they did so in a way to threaten people, if you break the law, this will be you too. So Rome, the authority of the state, committed murder through crucifixion with lots of people, lots of criminals, and among them were people like Jesus and Peter. And so it might be easy for us to condemn Rome for capital punishment because they're murdering, they're taking a life. But we might not be so bothered by it in our own day and age. We are self-justifying creatures by nature. Therefore, when we hear of capital punishment or people um, facing the death penalty, it is easy for us to say they made their choices and they got what they deserved. That is the same operating mentality that Rome had for executing criminals. They threatened the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Therefore, they should be put to death as an example for all people. Is it murder? It is the ending of a human life by another human. In our area, certainly many of you, um, just knowing we were going to preach through the Ten Commandments, knowing that you shall not kill, you shall not murder, one thing that comes to mind quickly for many in this room is, is abortion and this intense pressure towards protecting life. There's legislation at play right now around uh, abortions becoming illegal after 20 weeks. Now, I know that if we got 10, 15 people at a time together, we could probably come to a consensus on this being something that we believe is wrong, that we want life to flourish and go on, that we don't want this to happen. Because the same way we justify capital punishment is by saying those people made their choices Oftentimes, our first go-to argument for why abortion is wrong is because the person has not created or committed any crime. This also gets at deep pain. And to speak in a way that is not murdering 
towards people, we sometimes worry, will this keep us from saying truth? No, it won't. But the ethical push on the Ten Commandments for thou shalt not kill, do not murder, is to not just agree with that thing which we could preach to the choir on and agree that certain things are right and wrong, but the greatest push in Christian ethics is to be consistent in our upholding and valuing of life. Consider what this looks like. If there's emphasis on one area of taking a human life in this way is wrong, but taking a life in this way is right. There is ethical conflict in that, and one of the hardest things to do is find a consistent ethic of life. In some circles, abortion is viewed as a horrendous sin, but capital punishment gets a free pass. And in others, capital punishment is fought tooth and nail, and abortion is essentially disregarded. As I thought about what that means for us here at North Holland, what a consistent ethic that we live into of not just not committing murder, but also sustaining life. I thought about some of the ministries that we're a part of, some of the ministries that we support right here in our own neighborhood, places like... Dave, I'm going to switch. Oh, I'm magically back. It's like the battery died and experienced resurrection. (laughs) We are a church, after all. We believe in that sort of thing. But I'll just hold on to Nathan's microphone as a safety net. But I thought about the, the ministries that we here support. Good Samaritan Ministries, Atlas, Holland Rescue Mission, and Barnabas. And one of the things that struck me most when I thought about how we live into a consistent ethic of valuing life, not just not killing, but valuing life, was some of the stories from Barnabas Ministries. And some of you know these well. There are youth, not just in Flint or Detroit or the south side of Chicago, but right here in West Michigan. There are youth who know, they know that their parents considered abortion and did not. And one of the most painful, heart-wrenching things to know is that some of these youth will wonder and tell you they don't know why their mother did not have one because no one wants them. So we celebrate that life was not ended. But then children are born into this world who have no love and don't know why mom didn't just do that. These are youth in West Michigan. Barnabas is right here in Zealand and serving Holland. So to consider that we do celebrate life as a precious gift, we grieve when life is ended, but also that a consistent ethic of life is birth and into all years. A consistent ethic and valuing of life is speaking into people's existence to know that they are known, that they are loved, and that they do belong. Pastor Audrey will often say in her welcome and greeting, you are known, you are loved. A consistent valuing of life is across the board at all stages of life. Valuing life. Now the meaning of the Hebrew words for kill and murder, 
are pretty widespread. It is both premeditated homicide and it's also accidental death. It's death as an avenger, their wording, not mine, the lectionary, as well as a slayer. But to think of valuing life from beginning to end, from womb to tomb, as we often say in seminary when we talk about baptism to burial, we are valuing life, not just the preservation of it, but life in flourishing. For people to know that they are cared for and that not only that we're glad that someone didn't commit abortion, but that they, we are glad that they are alive today. Some of this happens through legislation. Some of it happens through activism. But two weeks ago, we were given just a real-life example of how this happens on a one-on-one basis. For a Wednesday night coffee hour, where we gather up in the narthex and just have a time of fellowship and coffee with those who maybe just want to join in some time or have kids in their programming, we had a, one of our a, a guest with us, a construction worker from one of the sites. And he told us that when he and his now wife got pregnant, uh, she did not want to be a mother, did not feel she had the capacity to. They were not married at this point. And he knew that he couldn't stop her, but what he urged her was that even if she didn't see this through, what he wanted more than anything If she couldn't be a mom, he would be a dad. He would figure this out. That he would value this life no matter what. So they did get married and they have their child together. It was a matter of saying, I will do this even if you won't. Not just urging her or shaming her into making a decision, but to say this child will be cared for and loved. This is the fullness of valuing life from beginning to end. Scripture gives us a commandment like do not kill. And then the Old Testament is filled with maybe some confusing or seemingly contradicting ideas on this. I think of King David committing adultery and then murder with Bathsheba. We can easily say that one's wrong. But sometimes we pass over that in 1 Kings chapter 2, on his deathbed, David gives his son Solomon a hit list of people that do not let their head go down in peace. We think about that the determining factor is intent in our hearts on if killing is murder or accidental. David is telling Solomon to not let their heads go down in peace. Even David did not fulfill in perfection this commandment to not murder. In a similar way, in a a contrasting way actually, we see Jesus greet those who betrayed him with the words, peace be with you. Peace be with you. In Numbers 35, right alongside of the law, in Numbers 35, we're given this idea of the cities of refuge. That in Israel, there were cities of refuge where if someone committed murder, but it was accidental, not intentional, they could go to one of these cities and be kept safe. But if the person who's If there is an avenger of the blood of that person, if they caught you and found you, they could kill you for revenge and they would not be counted as a murderer. This is God lifting up the stakes somewhat and holding the people to a standard by keeping some safety, but it was not the teleological, the finishing, the telescope-directed end towards honoring life where vengeance could still take place. 
All of the ethical conundrums on life ultimately boil down to the conclusion of where does the cycle end? When is defense no longer defense because the cycle of killing will not end? And when does it stop? I'm going to switch over, Dave, to Nathan. This. Oh, there we go. I would, I would just say that uh, Nathan Longfield, as an intern, just saves the day. His wife brings my wife to the hospital when she's uh, having contractions. Nathan throws me his microphone during service. So uh, just, just love on him, if you will. He's doing a great job. There are ethical conundrums, but at the bottom, at the bottom of it, for us as Christians, who are given this directive not just to not murder, but also to value life, is this, is to realize and just catch ourselves and notice that violent talk is easier. Violent talk is easier. Hatred and blame are easier than love and dignifying and building up. I have a great example of this. Sometimes when someone's really angry, what do they say? Oh, I just wish I could punch them in the face. That's an easy thing to say. And as a somewhat snarky black belt in Taekwondo, I always respond with, could you be more specific? Do you want to dislocate the jaw, fracture the jaw, go an uppercut to the eye socket, or hit the temple, or break the bridge of the nose? I want people to be specific. And I say that in jest. And that proves the point, even to myself, that violent talk is easy. And scoring points by making fun of our opponents is easy. But that's not the way of life that we have been given. That's not how Jesus defined it for us. I started listening to a political talk show earlier this week, and the premise started out with something that I thought was appealing, and it was, I'm not going to, uh, it was, I'm so sick of this world where anyone who you disagree with just counts you off as an idiot and dismisses you. And I thought, hey, I could listen to this. This is what we need more of. So I listened to the premise that I'm sick of everyone saying that I'm dumb if they disagree with me. And then in the first 20 minutes, the first three sections, all the host did was belittle and make fun of people who disagreed with him. So he wants his enemies to be held to a high standard, but not himself. Other people should not belittle me, but I will now call people fat and stupid for 20 minutes. And I don't even like the people that he was belittling. But maybe with this commandment in mind, I had to shut it off and say, no, this will not lead me in any way towards loving my enemies. It will only feed the easier route of hatred and blame and shaming others for their sin. Ethical conundrums can continue, but the biggest thing for us is to catch that violent talk and violent thought is easier and it's the path of least resistance. And that if we ask ourselves, have we murdered anyone lately? We just might have said some words, thought some thoughts, or been after someone. But the commandments are not just about restricting the bad, it's about projecting and pushing towards the good. And that we were made to be people who edify with our words. Just as Nathan led us through the call to worship, praise for our God and cursing of our brothers and sisters should not come out of the same mouth. 
that our words are to be gifts, and sometimes that is a gift of a rebuke or a correction, but it's not done with hatred or malice. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. He's not talking about cannibalism, a physical biting. He's talking about words, that words that we speak shape our community. Have you ever told someone about someone, something about someone before they met the other person? That could happen right here. Oh, yeah, beware of so-and-so. They, they will bother you. And then you have a propensity towards being bothered by that person because someone else's words shaped your perception. Don't commit that same sin. Violent talk is easy. And if we long for a world with lesser hostility from our enemies, we need to take that responsibility on our own. By protecting life, knowing that your words of kindness and compassion could change someone's day, and they might be more in need of hope than you could ever know. That your words of kindness and compassion could make the difference between suicide or not. That your words might affirm to someone that they do belong in this world and that we're simply glad that they're alive. But also that your words of life, rebuking someone for harassment, could put an abuser in their place. Or standing up for someone and not accepting the belittling of another could show a victim that this does not have to be the way it is. Protecting life by recognizing the psychology of a bully is someone who is drastically overcompensating for powerlessness in one area by abusing their power and authority in another. And they are desperate to feel confident. Protecting life by knowing that about a bully and even showing compassion to those who we would say don't deserve it. Word of mouth builds community. We can build up. And it takes a focus on the positive, and it brings us back to the same old truth and the reason why life is valued in the first place, because we are created in the image of God. So, do not murder. Do not murder with what you think, with what you say or do, but build one another up, even those who don't deserve it, and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ, where he says, pray, in fact, bless those who even persecute you. That's a hard road. But it is the road of perfection that Christ called us to without exception. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, in your word, you put restrictions on hatred and violence. But we know that this resides within our hearts and to bless and support life also has to be found in the capacity of our hearts. Lord, even in some small way, help us to bless life this week by the words that we say, by the prayers that we offer, by the deeds that we commit. 
Lord, may it be something so simple as a quick prayer to you, a word of appreciation to a neighbor, especially one whom we've been struggling with, a neighbor in our household, a neighbor at work. Lord, may it be found in the deeds of supporting the Skolton family in this time of death when you have called one of your servants home. May we bless life by supporting Eric and Leah and Nora and Harper in this time as well. Lord, help us to protect life by what we say, by what we think, by what we do. Amen.